Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. From Jonathan's plenary session from the Water to Wine Gathering in St. Joseph, Missouri, Elijah demonstrates the prophetic task to which we are now called, not to stand in the safe middle, but to stand in the dangerous in-between, not standing for ourselves, our own people or interests, even for our own faith, but to stand in between the world and her own self-destruction. The peace not only from the people of God, but all people is at stake, whether or not there is a people who are willing to stand in between. Well, good evening. What an amazing night. What an extraordinary time. I'm feeling all kinds of emotions right now. Not the least of which because um, I always refer to Sister Gaines as my spiritual grandmother, and I can verify that truly to sit with her is to sit with Jesus. And so I'm so stirred up from that. I was already crying all through Cheryl's talk, and then the prayer, I was like, and I knew that prayer from the General Assembly. That's uh, my family, the people talked about that for years, the presence that you felt when she prayed. Um, so the communion of saints feels very real to me right now, and that's, that's such a gift. I think especially a lot of what Cheryl was speaking to very prophetically tonight, I think so many of us are trying to find our place in the story. And I know and sometimes I can feel pretty far from home, but I know, I know I'm still connected to my grandmother's church <laughs> and to Sister Margaret, and it feels so good and yet so other to, to hear her voice tonight. And um, Cheryl Bridges-Johns herself, one of our great preachers, by the way, is, this, is she not phenomenal? Some of y'all didn't know what you were walking into, did you? you I love it. I love it when people hear her for the first time. Um, I was sharing my workshop today how growing up, I always say a hillbilly Pentecost. And what I mean when I say that is that, you know, the uncool Pentecostals, like, like Pentecostals, not from directly from the Zeus Street, more from the barn kind of Pentecostals. And, but when I, um, Cheryl was one of the people who was so key in my life, kind of a spiritual mother in my life in this, in my early twenties that kind of opened me up to a version of Pentecostalism that had this widescreen vision of justice and daughters were prophesying and, um, and helped me find my place within the traditions. The fact that, that she's here, and I'm not trying to just do the speaker thing and visit or blow smoke or something, but Brian and Perry, you know, Brian and Perry have carved out space for so many of us. And the fact that they've simply lived their story out in public has given so many people here permission to share their story. And people who were not a people before feel like they're finding a people. And through, weird, through the weird wonder of the internet, even through that, the Holy Ghost is somehow bringing us together. Isn't that beautiful? And a lot of things are converging in this space. Sarah Bessie is one of my favorite preachers, too. So powerful. Also has such a presence. And uh, I don't know. I was just thinking even, um, Sarah, as you talked about Rachel last night, Rachel was so that person where 
people who were not a people found a people because of her. And it's just really beautiful to feel at home with you guys. And for all of us to feel a little less weird and a little bit more sane for a few minutes. Tomorrow we'll go right back out. But right now we feel a little more sane. Isn't it good? This is really, really good. I've been so ministered to. I would come to this. I, would, I, I wouldn't have to speak. I, would, I wouldn't miss this for anything. I, my soul's been so fed to be with you guys already. So thank you for the, the gift and all the stories I've heard already from so many of you. Such a gift. Let me just pray for us one more time. I know we've already had just uh, such a holy time here tonight. But I, I won't, So I'm not going to visit a whole lot more. I won't tell funny stories or whatever. If you let me pray, we'll just jump right into a text. So, God, we do sense your presence. And Spirit, you do take us into the past and into the future. And you bring the future crashing into the present. And in such a weird time where so many of us feel displaced, so many of your daughters and your sons feel like exiles, I am grateful tonight for this sense of oasis. For these streams of desert, the streams that you've created for us here in the desert, here in the wilderness. That the wilderness is not a place of punishment, but rather the place where you romance your people, the place where you call us back to our first love. And we sense that tonight. We sense you drawing us back. Where as complex as the world is right now, there's something so simple and wonderful about being in your presence together where we don't have to have all the answers and everything doesn't have to be clear. It doesn't all have to, the math doesn't have to work out. We're able to just be. And I just, we just want to receive that word you've spoken over us already tonight to not be afraid to know that you are with us. I do feel like you're loving on us here tonight. And I do feel like some hearts that have been, um, battered and bruised are being mended and, and healed tonight. And you're just wrapping us up right now. There's something always so tender about your presence. We're grateful for that gift. So I just pray now in these last few moments that you, that we have uh, together for this day, speak to us one more time. Allow us to just attend to what the spirit is saying to the church Allow us to put everything else aside and just to be present to you and to one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. I'm going to drop you right into a text. I'm not going to give you a lot of context because I don't think it's necessary. And even, I feel like it's, it's, it's just sort of the flow of the story. We're just sort of thrown in. It's in Elisha's story. Second Kings. Chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Once when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he took counsel with his officers. He said, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, take care not to pass this place because the Arameans are going down there. The king of Israel sent word to the place 
of which the man of God spoke. More than once or twice, he warned such a place so that it was on the alert. The mind of the king of Aram was greatly perturbed because of this. And he called his officers and he said to them, Now tell me who among us sides with the king of Israel. So in other words, we have a leak. Who is the leaker? Then one of his officers said, No one, my lord king. It is Elisha, the prophet in Israel, who tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. God had been whispering to Elisha the plans the king had been making. So every time he plots another move, Elisha prophetically is able to notify his people, and they're always one step ahead. So the king, of course, is furious. In verse 13, he says, Go and find where he is, and I will send and seize him. He was told he is in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots and a great army. They came by night and surrounded the city. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. We can stop right there for right now. I'm wondering if anybody else here tonight knows anything of what it feels like to be surrounded. Surrounded. When it literally feels like every exit is blocked and you're at a place where there's no escape and there's no relief and you feel hemmed in and wedged in because even the conversations I've had here in the last 24, 36 hours or whatever, that's a lot of what I'm hearing. As I think a lot of us are in some small spaces where we feel trapped. And a lot of us are in some places, and some of you here who are in ministry are definitely in some spaces where you feel like you can't breathe and you can't move. And it's not really in your head. You know that little saying, it's not paranoia when they really are out to get you? Because in this very weird, polarizing moment that we're in, and when you do have this sense that you've left home, and Cheryl named that sense of homelessness so well, and you know you can't exactly go back to where you, you came from, that would be death. But you don't know exactly where you're going yet. And now in the meantime, you just don't really have, where, where do you go? Where do you go? What exactly do you do? And, and when the armies have surrounded the city, Elisha's attendant raises that very question. And I feel like it's the question that all of us are asking in this moment. I feel like it's the question I'm asking every three seconds. And I don't claim to be a great prophet. I don't claim to have any perspective on these things. I'm wringing my head like my hands like everybody else. His servant says, 
the next verse, as he wakes up, he looks around, he sees that they're surrounded. His servant said, alas, master, what shall we do? What shall we do? Because the fact of the matter is you get to some places where you're surrounded enough and you're wedged in enough to where you know you can't think your way out, you can't theologize your way out, you can't intellectualize your way out. And I feel like this is what so many of us are grappling with right now. Okay, these ideas are great and um, there does seem to be something maybe even that the Holy Spirit is doing within this chaos somehow. It does seem maybe the Spirit's brooding over the chaos. Maybe there is something new that's happening. And maybe there is something that sparked in my relationship with God. And maybe there's a new depth to my prayer life. And maybe there is something kind of wild and undomesticated about this time that's kind of exciting and cool. But in the meantime, I've still got to pay the bills. And the elders at our church are not on this journey with me. And people within my family or my community feel like I've lost my mind. And um, what are we going to (laughs) do? What are we actually going to do? Can somebody please just tell me what to do? I mean, does anybody hear me right now? Like, do you you, you you ever feel like that in your gut the way that I do? What are we going to do, though? Like, really, what are we going to do? I mean, no, really. I'm not talking about acute workshops like what are we going to do the kind of crisis that we're in in the world right now i know the world seems like it's always in crisis does it but we've so perfected the technology for our own destruction and it is serious the ecological environmental crisis is serious I escaped dispensationalism in which I was certain that God was going to fry us all and we're all going to burn to now think, oh boy, I don't think we're all going to burn because God's going to do it. We're freaking going to do it to ourselves. Talk about going from the frying pan into the fire. I'm more fatalistic than ever. And it's based on facts, not Tim LaHaye fiction. Do you hear what I'm saying? Man, it is morbid. War with Iran, the political landscape. Oh my gosh. Like I think on some level, if you're looking at the data and you're not afraid, you're just not paying attention, right? I mean, everything, everything. It's it's a scary moment that we're in. It's a real question. What shall we do? And Elisha responds to his servant in the words that we just heard addressed to us so prophetically. Do not be afraid. And then he says something kind of amusing. There are more with us than there are with them. (laughs) Well, that, that sounds cool, but let's think about this. There are more with us than there are with them. Really? Is that true? There are more... More, more, uh, more what? More who? More with, uh, are there more with us than there are with Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr.? I do, it doesn't seem that way to me. It doesn't look like that to me. I, I, are, there, are there more with, uh, in a time when 
the gospel has been so co-opted in so many different directions. Are, really? Because again, if we're looking at the data, if we're looking at the facts, if we're looking at evidence that demands a verdict, like this just sounds to me factually untrue. And if I'm Elijah's attendant, then I'm wanting to say right here, it is awesome that you are a man of such hope. But I looked out the window. And I have seen with my own eyes the armies that have surrounded us. And I'm telling you, there are two of us. And there's a whole lot of them. And this sounds like crazy talk. And here's the thing that I think is so wonderful about this passage. And there's no lecture here. Even for anybody here tonight who's looking for a really pragmatic answer to the question, what shall we do? What, like five steps? I don't know, man. But I love this. Elisha then prayed and he said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes. That he may see. There's not a plan. There's not a strategy. There's not an outline. There is simply a prayer asking God to open the eyes of this man that he might see the world that already is from a different perspective to see what is from a different point of view. And this is not optimism, by the way, because he still sees the opposing armies. He still sees their chariots. But what happens through this prayer is that all of a sudden, well, let me read on. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Full of horses and chariots of fire. Not a gun in sight, by the way. But chariots of fire. So maybe some of y'all were taught, you know, that Jesus needed bigger guns to beat the Antichrist. That's actually not how this works. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations is a way of saying that God will call creation into account the same way he called it into existence by his word. That's all it takes. It's not... The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God at the pulling down of strongholds. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Is it all right if I'm a little bit preachy tonight? He, 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 sees the, he sees God's chariots. All of a sudden, he's able to see, he's able to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing in this moment. That there's another story that God is telling that's different from the story we think we're living. And that's the thing I feel like we have to remind ourselves of right now is that God's always telling a story from the underside that has nothing to do with what's being reported in any of the news, even the more credible sources. God's telling a different story. And we may not know yet exactly what that story is. But I think we're so desperate for this kind of prophetic vision right now. I don't know how we keep going if we don't have it. Because this is a hard-edged hope 
that is so much tougher and more robust than optimism. I'm not talking about the half glass full. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is, this is tougher than that. This is we're aware of the reality. We're not sticking our heads in the sand. We're not pretending that the challenges aren't real. We're not pretending the moment's not dire, that these are not dangerous times. We're not living in denial. That's not what hope is. But there's this real hope in the God of Elisha, that there's something different that God is doing under the surface. And apparently, more of us than there are of them doesn't necessarily mean more people. (laughs) Maybe it's angels. Maybe it's something of the weight of God. It makes me think of when Dr. King would say that the moral arc of the universe is long but bent toward justice. At any given moment in history, the data doesn't make that sound true. And yet I believe it is. That's the kind of vision that I need to be renewed tonight is that God is doing something in the world that, that goes against the data. <laughs> that the, there, there's a story that God is yet telling of us that we, don't have the, that we don't have the full perspective on, and coming to trust that story. Oh, man, I, I, cannot, I have had no sense of time or anything else. I'm just, honestly, Dr. Johns, you just messed me up with the talk and then ending with Margaret's prayer. Like, I'm, I'm so out of sorts right now in a good way. Let me read a little further. When the Arameans came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, and he said, Strike this people, please, with blindness. Isn't this wonderful? So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So they're struck. The enemy is struck blind, and he leads them away. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw that they were inside Samaria. So now the army realized that they've been trapped. And verse 21, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, this verse always makes me laugh, Father, shall I kill them? I love that he says it twice. Shall I kill them? Like, can you, can you feel how bloodthirsty is? I mean, can I kill him? I mean, you know, can I kill him? Like he's ready to go. But listen to Elisha's response here. He answered, no. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those who you want to kill? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink. Kill them. No, no, no. You're going to feed them. And let them go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. Man, we love it when God prepares for us a feast in the presence of our enemies. I don't know how you feel about it when God prepares a feast for your enemies in your presence. But that's actually what's happening here. After they ate and drank, he sent them on their way and they went to their master and the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. End of story. Isn't that a weird and wonderful little tale? So the last couple minutes that I take, here's what I'm seeing. I know we have a lot of different stories about prophets, and like anything else within the canon, they're diverse. I know we have some story involving prophets where folk get wiped out. But I feel like in so many ways, Elisha's stories will often directly prefigure Jesus. And I feel like Elisha in so many ways 
embodies the best and truest of the prophetic tradition. And nothing, in, there's nothing more powerful to me than this particular story of this, this glimpse of the prophetic tasks that we get in Elisha. And hear me right now when I talk about the prophetic task, because this is really important. I'm not, I know in the Old Testament that God raises up a handful of prophets along the margins who have a particular word for a particular people in a particular place, and that just happens here and there. But please keep in mind that the new reality now is that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh so that all of God's sons and daughters prophesy. Sarah brought up our friends right now debating about women preaching. I want to ask the question as is worded in the book of Acts. Have you even heard of the Holy Spirit? But I'll save that for another time. The sons and daughters prophesy. So now it's not a matter of a handful of prophets here and there. We're a prophetic people. And all our communities are called to be prophetic communities. We're all called to be prophets. So this is relevant to all of us right here. What I love about Elisha here and what I love about this particular image of what it means to be prophetic is that, yes, Elisha represents his people to a point. Yes, he's from Israel. Yes, he speaks to his own people. He's of them. And yet what we see through Elisha is that his obedience here, his ultimate calling, is really not just to his people. It's because of the obedience of Elisha that there's peace in the land. What hinges on Elisha's obedience is not just peace for the people of God, but peace for the enemies of God. Because in case nobody reminded you in a minute, the covenant that God made to Abraham that I'm going to make you great, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to give you this great family, and I'm going to give you all the sons and daughters and many sons, said Father Abraham, nod your head, turn around, sit down. The point of the covenant all along is that God says to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So anything good God ever did for Abraham, anything good God ever did for Israel was for the sake of the world. Anything good God ever did for the church was for the sake of the world. Anything good that God has ever done for God's friends is for the sake of God's enemies. So that ultimately nobody has to be left out. That's always where the story was moving. But the temptation always is to retreat into a promise that's smaller and more tribalistic and is more about taking care of me and mine. To where that hope that was supposed to be so big and broad in scope becomes as small as what am I going to do for me and my family, for me and my people? How are we going to take care of ourselves? But I think what we see here is that real prophetic hope means the people of God are actually standing between, well, well, let me say it like that. They're standing in between. Not stand, I've never said this before in my life. They're not standing in the middle. They're standing in between. Those are different things. Standing in the middle. Well, you know, we really need to be moderate. You know, I like Pastor Brian's stuff about nationalism, but some of that might come off a little bit abrasive. And really, we need a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount, but we have to be pragmatic here. 
I'm not talking about being in the middle. I'm tired of the middle. <laughs> I'm tired of pragmatic and polite and, you know, if that means just watering down the essential Jesus message. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about standing in the middle. I'm talking about standing in between, in that dangerous place. A prophetic people can't be co-opted by one side over against the other. Because we don't have a side. If y'all remember that passage in Joshua, whose side are you on? The Lord's side. We're not anybody's side. We're not on America's side. We can't be co-opted by a political party. We're on the Lord's side. And who is God for? Everybody. What is God for? The restoration of all things. So what do we have to be about? The restoration of all things. And I'm aware this is the most 30,000 foot talk ever. And it is just seems so impractical right now. But, but I just feel this in my bones in this moment. What this is coming down to, while we continue to have all these like cute internet debates about sexuality and blah, 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 and everybody's all like, mm-hmm. you do understand that ultimately the real decision is between the way of Jesus, the way of self-sacrificial love, or the way of the sword. That's ultimately the choice. And the difference is the way of annihilation the way of utter self-destruction versus the way of peace. That's what it really comes down to. Think about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you lest the hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And what we continue to see is that so long as we persist in our greed, our selfishness, our consumerism, as long as we persist in doing it in our, our own way, as long as we don't go the way of Jesus, as long as we don't go that path of self-sacrificial love, the world is in deep, deep danger. And what are the people of God called to do once again? Called to, called to stand in between. I promise I'm going to be done in a second so we can have some questions. <laughs> Which seems funny. I know. <laughs> People are like, I'm not asking you questions right now. <laughs> I'm scared of this tall Pentecostal in this moment. But do you hear what I'm saying? I I just feel like we're, so much of the time, I feel like our concerns are so narrow. When reality, what the church is really supposed to be is that witness that stands between the world and her own tendency towards self-destruction. That's what I think. I really believe that. We're that witness who stands in in the dangerous in-between spaces where you are going to be misunderstood and you are going to be talked about (laughs) and people aren't going to like it because everybody wants an us versus them. I mean, we really do, don't we? We love us versus them. How will we even know that we're an us if we don't have a them? And once we were fundamentalists until we weren't fundamentalists and now we're so mad at the fundamentalists (laughs) and we're galvanized by our anger at the fundamentalists Oh, I hate those people. Anybody can be in our club, but one of them. Everybody likes an us versus them. And that, by the way, is my simple barometer of false versus true prophecy. If you try to kindle in me an us versus them spirit, I'm pretty sure that ain't the Holy Ghost. 
because I don't think it's God that stirs me up in suspicion and fear against my neighbor. I don't think it's God that gets me riled up in a state of constant outrage. That's just not what the Holy Spirit does. Even in the face of real corruption, the Holy Spirit breaks my heart over those things. I know when I'm walking in the Holy Spirit because I pray for President Trump. You hear what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't get to hate him. No. So whenever I hear anybody trying to push me into that kind of us versus my, oh, that's not what God sounds like. That's not what the voice of God sounds like. I can't be wrapped up in that. I can't be pulled into that. Our witness is more important. Man, I know this feels like the most impractical sermon ever. So let it land wherever it needs to land. But I just, I just hope, I don't mean this to sound grandiose or something. But I just feel like precisely because so many people in this space have felt pushed to the margins. It can feel like your work and your witness are insignificant. And I'm telling you, not only is it not insignificant, I'm telling you it is cosmically significant. Those who witness for the, for the king and the way of the king and the peace of the king and his way of nonviolence, it's supremely important. It matters. And it matters all the more if we really do believe that in our small acts of obedience, even when we don't see immediate results, even when we look out the window and we see that we're still surrounded by an army, then in reality, there's a bigger story that God is telling. The chariots of fire are still coming. And I feel like I need to say it like this. God is going to accomplish God's good purposes in the world one way or another, with or without anybody's consent. God is. The creation that's groaning for restoration and Christians like Margaret and like those earliest saints have been praying for 2,000 years, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Baby, that's going to happen. You think God's not going to honor that prayer? God's work is going to be accomplished. But we get to participate with it. We get to bear witness to it. And whether or not we bear witness to it is crucial. And I think in the same way that the last talk, there was this sense of being loved on, validated, and how you're seen and known by the Lord. I just want you to feel the, not a weight that's like, oh boy, I have to go out and change the world. Not, not, that's paralyzing. No, just more that sense of your witness matters. These small acts of obedience and bearing witness to the way of Jesus really, really matters. Let me pray for us, then I'll take questions. God, I just want to commend your sons and your daughters to you because I know that so many of them are, I know so many of their hearts are heavy. It's um, even while we're encouraged here by being with each other, that, that heaviness kind of never goes away in a moment like this. And I just want to pray, and I'm not going to pray for anything else. In fact, if this doesn't feel too weird to you, I'm not, you know, <laughs> not trying to lead anybody anything uncomfortable. But if you, if this is just not way too charismatic for you, would you even feel comfortable laying, gently laying your hands on your own eyes? Would you do that? Could I, could I just pray this over you? God, I just want to pray for each of your children right now. Would you open up our eyes? Would you open up our eyes to be able to see the way you're calling us to see? 
God, we know that you're doing some things in the world that we're just not aware of. Um, God, we know that you're doing some things right now that we can't read about on Twitter or in the news. God, would you open up our eyes? Uh, There's so many conflicting narratives and so many storylines and so much information and data. God, tonight, could you give us a glimpse once again of who you are, of who you say that we are? Allow us to see your story once again. Um, As you said to John in Revelation, can we hear that invitation? Come up here. Come up here and see the world from an aerial point of view. See something more, God, than just the, the calamity of the moment. Give us the gift of your vision. Give us the gift of sight. Allow us as your servants to be able to see the way you would have us to see. And finally, it's already been prayed so powerfully over us tonight, but I just want to agree with that because Elisha said this too, as we see and as we trust in your good purposes that you have for creation, even your fire is a fire that purifies, not that destroys. As we trust that, as we trust in the good purposes of God for your creation that was created good, help us not to be afraid. Remind us not to be afraid. I ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. All right. Just ask him later. Okay. Uh, I, I don't. I thought that was really good. Um, I don't even have a question. I just want to talk to Jonathan a minute. And y'all can listen. Please do. Let's do that. You know, um, I've been very influenced by Rene Girard. And Rene Girard would teach us that what happens in times of war is that the two conflicting sides tell themselves they are very, very, very different. We are us, they are them. But in fact, what has happened is they are locked in a mimetic rivalry where they are becoming more and more alike. They're taking their cues from one another. This is what I was trying to say last night with, once you start hating the haters, you're, you know... Beware when you fight monsters, lest you become a monster. So I just wanted to say that. I want you to just riff on that a little bit more because you're going right down that path really good. That's, I mean, the, the, I feel passionate about this. I do too. Because you can be right yeah. on the issue and still end up possessed by the Satan. That's right. And I, do, you, do, you, do you ever see that movie? I think it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie, I think. I don't know. But the movie Fallen. Oh, with Denzel Washington? Yeah. It was at M. Night, but yes, I, like, I know the okay. movie. Yeah, you, you know. Time is on my side. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and <laughs> once we start hating the haters, we've just been touched by that thing. It's possessed us, and, and, and the devil is singing through us. Time is on my side. Yes. Yeah. Context for the film, this was 1997 with Denzel Washington, y'all. There is the idea, John Goodman's in it, there's like, the, and Donald Sutherland, um, there is a demon, and whenever uh, a, a person who's possessed by the demon touches another person, 
they're possessed by the demon. And you know, because they start singing, time is on, is on my side. And, but it, it so connects with the Gerard stuff. First of all, I hope y'all know, and I'm not saying this to my friend, Brian speaks to this stuff with more prophetic clarity than like anybody I know. So please continue to listen to him on these things because his voice is so crucial in our time. But thank you for lobbing me this softball. What I want to say about it is this. Jesus says directly, Satan cannot cast out Satan. And what happens is if in the attempt even to, to resist something that we think is satanic or demonic, if we behold it too long, if we look at it too long, we take on the energy, we take on the character of the thing we're trying to resist. This is why it's really, really important that even in the work of what is, I think, good work of resistance, that we're not always focused on that all the time. I'll even say it like this, focused on him all the time. Because <laughs> if that's all you think about, oh, dear God. You, we do become the monster. I think Satan cannot cast out Satan. And, and hear it this way. Don't hear it like in a, um, now children, you know, now we need, to be, we need to be nice. We need to be loving. Like this, this is not tis, tis, tis. It's more pragmatic than that. Dr. King understood this. Like without transcendent love, this just falls apart. Because ultimately the, that, that, I think in the Gerard thesis, the mimetic rivalry, those forces are too strong. The force of accusation is too strong. It will just pull us out with the tide. If, if we don't find a way to be kept in love, we'll just get swept out with the tide and it just doesn't work. That, that's, that ultimately is the point. It's not like, you know, now love because Jesus said that we're supposed to, and you're supposed to be, it's, it's, it's deeper than that. We, we love not only because God tells us to, because it's the only thing that works. <laughs> loving our enemies in an authentic way. Go ahead, Brian, please. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So good. I love it. I love it. Amen. I'm so sweaty right now. Um, I, I'm, I'm, Jonathan, I'm just curious. Um, uh, for one, I've been reading like, Jim Wallace and Shane Claiborne for, for a long time. And I know that you were just at Moral Witness Wednesday uh, and the Poor People's Campaign, and, and I certainly deeply resonate with all of that. Could you maybe speak to the spirit of how that's being done in a way that's not us versus them, in a way that, that somehow loves fiercely, stands in between what makes that unique, even though it is speaking clearly against it and even maybe him. Thank you for that question. Okay, so I'll tell you what I I'll tell you what I think, but I'll also tell you my legitimate tension here and where I do struggle. Okay, so um, of the people who have mentored me, um, one of those people have been was Stanley Hauerwas. I mean, like he's been very influential on me. And like I love Hauerwas, and I'm not I'm not going to do a whole thing right here. But some of you know what I'm talking about, Hauerwas, and some of that kind of. Anabaptist-ish theology has been very important to me, continues to be. It's an important witness. And I feel like the emphasis in that world is so often on, we need to embody an alternative community. And I love that. I think there's so much truth in it. And coming from a Pentecostal context, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. But where I have shifted somewhat, and this is what I'm, this duels in me, is that as much as I appreciate that whole kind of Hauerwasian project, and I think like sometimes like, yeah, 
Because how was this whole thing is, you know, just let the church be the church. The best thing the church can do for the world is let the church know it is the world, <laughs> kind of by contrast. Um, I think that's true to a point. But the flip side of that is I would say over the last 10 years or so, I've really, I've really been dis- discipled in a lot of ways by the black church. And um, going to things like I go to the Proctor Institute in the summer at the Alex Haley Farm, where you've got a lot of the luminaries of the civil rights, the freedom, the freedom movement that are still alive, and just learning from these folks. My concern is that sometimes that kind of, as much as the Anabaptist stuff still matters to me, I'm afraid it can be a little white and a little privileged. And, and you know, I do think especially for folks who are kind of living on the underside, direct engagement is pretty necessary. And the reason I continue to study that movement and try to learn from those folks is that I feel like, especially for the church in America, we have such a resource for renewal in our backyard in the black church. And there's nothing else quite like it in America, not, not, not like here. Like we have that kind of witness. And uh, it's come up several times, kind of like the ex-evangelical thing. Much love to those folks. I really do love those people. But I feel like when people are railing about, man, if only the church could be this or that and whatever, I'm like, you know, the black church on the other side of your town that you're not willing to go to probably is that. That church already exists. Like, you don't have to dream it up. You don't have to imagine. Put out candles and maybe one day we'll just sort of like, that's not how you get there, (laughs) y'all. Like, there's a, this thing exists and there's a tradition to it, you know. But part of what I love about that world in particular is I feel like precisely because there is a theological framework for it, I do feel like a lot of love there. I mean, before we marched um, yesterday or two days ago, whenever that was, we're singing this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Um, I'm going to go to the White House. I'm going to let it shine. You know, there was nothing but love there. Like, I feel like the, uh, so, you know, so, but I'll admit that I still struggle with that tension sometimes because there's a part of me that says like, man, all of this is like evil and bad and really need to withdraw. And I still have that inclination sometimes, but I also kind of think, uh, especially when you think about the poorest of the poor for where we live, if we don't actually do something about this, you know, the world has not changed. So that witness has become really crucial for me. Does that, I hope that answers the question. John, that question over here. Bear with me. Cause I'm a glass case of emotion right now. I've been uh, like that all weekend. Uh, kind of two part first do you ever bomb on stage? Because I've never, never heard it. Uh, <laughs> can I just interject real quick before you finish? More times than I can count. And the worst time ever was when Cheryl and Jackie invited me to preach at their church. And I preached in front of them in Hollis Gauze. And I preached my, I, I wanted to crawl out of that room. I wanted to die. It was so awful. That's, that makes that me feel better. Truth. Makes me feel better. Um, thank you. <laughs> there, there's a question in here somewhere. So, so bear with me. Uh, you know, right before that story is a gr- another great story of Elisha where the young prophets come and say, hey, can, can we go build a bigger, there's not enough room for us. And of course, Elisha has grace and says, absolutely, go do that. And then they say, well, come with us. And there's this idea of, uh, I think Ricky Moore did a great teaching on it one time of they lost their cutting edge. Yeah. And then it was baptized, and they got their cutting edge back. And I think that sometimes, or and this is, I guess, where the question is, can we sometimes think our eyes are open in a search just to be relevant? And not that being relevant is bad, but we want the cutting edge, that that's what we think our eyes are open to. And really, it hasn't been baptized yet, so it's just going to sink anyways, Mm. instead of really seeing what is the Spirit showing us, instead of, just trying to find the, the cutting edge and the relevant thing. Yeah. I don't know if there's a question in that. 
do you ever see that or does that resonate that that's something that we do uh, as followers of Christ sometimes we're just so eager to have something cutting and relevant that we miss what the real vision is I absolutely think that and you know I, I would put it like this and I don't I don't think this is too much of an overgeneralization though as a Pentecostal preacher I do traffic in overgeneralizations um <laughs> I don't I can I can think of almost nothing good that's ever been born out of like a desire to be relevant because here's my thing there's nothing more futuristic than the spirit of the future that God sends to break into our present and I just feel like so often the things that we think of as sort of being cutting edge it's just um it what that often turns into Brian speaks to this so well is um we're emulating pop culture about 15 years behind. It's like, how cool is this? They're like, oh, look, a coffee shop. Oh, oh, like a guitar riff like Nirvana. But it's 2005 now. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's always, it's always behind the curve. So I just think like that the search for relevance never yields anything particularly constructive. And because I just think what I, I think the Holy Spirit kind of seeing, and I know this sounds very like intangible, but it's always like a little bit wilder, you know, than any of the options that are currently being presented to us. This is kind of, and this was where, um, I guess I said something like this tonight, but I know I did um, directly like in the workshop today. I, I'm a roomy sort of person and I, I'm, I'm glad when people kind of get free and like whatever, but it's, that, that's, that's my whole reason for that kind of critique of like, man, y'all, if, if, if you have no vision beyond like, well, I was a fundamentalist, but now like, you know, I, I can cuss and watch, Game of Thrones and drink a beer, like, okay, well, you're not a fundamentalist anymore, and this is changing the world. How? You know, like, really? Does it mean you're any less consumeristic than you were? It doesn't mean that you're not under the tyranny of other false narratives. You know, that's the stuff we got to be really suspicious of. I just think like, oh, boy, you used to vote Republican, and now you're a Democrat? Whoa! What a massive change! That's not that big. It's not that big of a move. So yeah, I think like there really is something to that, that what the Holy Spirit wants to do is always something a little, just a little wilder and less domesticated than in the options that are presented to us. And what, so what's going to seem relevant to me in the moment, you know, is probably not quite as um, threatening (laughs) as what the Holy Spirit actually wants to do. Thank you for listening today. More from Jonathan Martin. Go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support this podcast and help us keep going, go to patreon.com slash man, and we appreciate your support. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.